Welcome to Murder Minutes. Today, the story of the machete murderer. But first, your true crime headlines. Three people have been arrested in connection with the disappearance of a Connecticut mother of five who vanished nearly eight months ago. 50-year-old Jennifer Dulos was last seen dropping her children off at school just after 8 a.m. on May 24th and was reported missing by worried friends later that night. Her car was found about three miles from her home, and stains in the home's garage tested positive for human blood. Authorities believe that Jennifer Dulos was the victim of a serious physical assault, and she was presumed dead, though her body has never been found. Surveillance video captured what is believed to be Fotis Dulos disposing of trash bags at various trash receptacles around Hartford, and police found clothing in those trash bags that contained Jennifer's blood. At the time of her disappearance, Jennifer Dulos was involved in a contentious custody battle with her estranged husband, Fotis Dulos. In court filings, Mrs. Dulos described her husband's behavior as controlling and bullying, and expressed that she was fearful of him. Mr. Dulos has denied these accusations and has denied any involvement in the disappearance of his wife. In September, authorities charged Fotis Dulos and his girlfriend, Michelle Traconis, with tampering with physical evidence and hindering prosecution in connection with the case. Both pleaded not guilty and were released on bond. Last week, both were arrested again along with a third man, Kent Mawinney, an attorney and friend of Fotis Dulos. This time, Dulos was charged with murder, felony murder, and kidnapping, while Traconis and Mawinney were both charged with conspiracy to commit murder. Dulos and Traconis have both been released to await trial after posting multi-million dollar bonds, but Mawinney remains behind bars. His bond is set at $2 million. A 29-year-old Utah woman spent a month searching the internet for ways to kill someone before stabbing her four-year-old daughter to death, according to police. Nicole Lester's phone contained Google searches for questions like, how do you break a neck? And where is the best place to hit someone with an ax? Police discovered the searches during their investigation into the murder of Lester's young daughter, who was stabbed to death by her mother in what investigators call a premeditated attack. Police were called to Lester's home in West Valley City, Utah, around 5 a.m. on December 31st. When they arrived, they found four-year-old Lainey Voss in the home's basement. She had been stabbed more than 30 times, and a ceramic kitchen knife covered in blood was found near her body. Her wounds were so severe that they punctured her internal organs and nearly severed her shoulder and wrist. Her six-year-old brother was asleep in the home, unharmed, and was turned over to Lester's mother, who owns the house and was not home at the time of the murder. Lester faces charges of murder and aggravated murder and could face the death penalty if convicted. An Oregon man is facing attempted murder and hate crime charges for allegedly beating a 70-year-old immigrant from India in the office of the motel that she owned. 53-year-old James Lamb of Eugene was charged with attempted murder, bias crime, assault, 
burglary, strangulation, menacing, and criminal mischief for the attack, which occurred on New Year's Eve at the Hub Motel in Redmond, where Land had been staying. The victim suffered broken bones in the brutal attack, but is expected to survive. She offered her grand jury testimony from her hospital bed, where she remains as she recovers from her injuries. The grand jury decided to include the biased crimes based on statements that Lamb made regarding the victim's country of origin, expressing his desire to rid America of people like her. Lamb is being held on $50,000 bail as he awaits his next court appearance. Those were your true crime headlines. Up next, the man who killed over 25 people in a small town. But first, a quick break. Finding the right vitamins and supplements can be tricky. And if you get overwhelmed in the vitamin aisle like I do, chances are you've given up more than once and opted for the same one-size-fits-all multivitamin that everyone else is taking. But for me, this year is different. I dumped out all my old stale multivitamins because my New Year's resolution for 2020 is to take better care of my body. That's why I've just ordered Care Of. Care Of is a wellness brand that helps you maintain your health goals with a customized vitamin plan that helps you feel your best with quality real ingredients backed by science and research. No snake oil here. Care Of's online quiz is quick and easy, but comprehensive. It asked me questions like, how much sleep do you get? Never enough. How often do you work out? Rarely. Do you follow any specialty diets? That's a different resolution. And are you concerned about your hair, skin, and nail health? Yes, yes, and yes. Care Of helped me find the vitamins and powders that will support my specific health goals this year. Some that I've never even heard of before, like ashwagandha to manage my stress, and astaxanthin for my skin. And some familiar ones too, like magnesium for sleep support, calcium plus for my bones, and cranberry for my urinary health. And Care-of's vitamins come in handy, eco-friendly daily packs made of compostable films. So taking care of yourself isn't just good for you, it's good for the planet too. Perfect for helping me stick to both of my New Year's resolutions on the go. So what are you waiting for? Take care of yourself. For 50% off your first Care Of order, go to TakeCareOf.com and enter the code MINUTE50. That's 50% off your first Care Of order by going to TakeCareOf.com and entering the code MINUTE50. That's M-I-N. UTE50. Take care of yourself. Welcome to Murder Minute. Today, how the machete murderer was caught. Yuba City, California sits 40 miles north of Sacramento, at the bottom of the Sutter Buttes, a mountain range known as the world's smallest. The modest size agricultural town is known for the Feather River a gigantic fruit processing plant, and a thriving Sikh community. In 1971, a spree of brutal crimes rocked Yuba City, taking the lives of at least 25 migrant workers. 
In May of that year, a peach grower was surveying his orchard when he spotted a gaping hole in the ground beside a pile of freshly scooped soil. At about five feet long and two feet wide, it looked more like a gravesite than anything horticultural. When he returned later to find the hole filled, suspicion prompted him to phone the local sheriff's department. Soon after, three feet beneath the ground, authorities discovered the remains of 40-year-old laborer, Kenneth Whitaker. Like many of the workers, Kenneth had been down and out when he sought employment in the fields there. Most members of the largely male worker community struggled with issues that made day labor their only option. Alcoholism, drug addiction, poverty, homelessness, a lack of needed health care, little to no support system. That's probably why little is publicly known about Kenneth beyond his brutal murder. Other than his age, newspapers only described him as a homeless, transient laborer, a drifter. But we do know he was born in the early 1930s and probably endured many hardships. It's not a smooth life that tends to land someone on the streets. He was a teenager throughout World War II. During his 20s, the civil rights movement took form in the U.S. as increasingly more people began speaking out and protesting about racism and other forms of discrimination, a collective fight for justice. There was nothing just about Kenneth's sudden death. The killer had sexually assaulted him, stabbed and mutilated his body, and split his head open with a machete. He was found lying on his back with his left arm positioned across his chest, his right arm raised, and his shirt pulled up over his head, according to court records. An autopsy also showed stab wounds from a knife or knife-like instrument in his left chest. The aorta between his left lung and heart had been slashed, which was determined to be the cause of death. Experts deduced that he had likely been dead less than 24 hours when he was found. Six days later, another body was discovered in a similar shallow grave at a nearby ranch, then another near the Feather River. A serial killer had made his way into this rural town, and investigators believed he remained in very close proximity. As the manhunt surged, Eric Grunder, an eager young reporter for Appeal Democrat, a local daily newspaper, was given exclusive access to the crime scenes. He was in the hospital recovering from knee surgery at the time, though, and missed out on initial coverage. His wife showed him front-page headlines about the case, look at what you're missing, and within days, the journalist was hobbling around the scenes on crutches, taking it all in. This wasn't exactly CSI, he later told the paper. It was a bunch of guys in a small town sheriff's department with a case that would have challenged the best departments anywhere. As leads began to accumulate, bodies were transferred to a local funeral home for identification and autopsies, filling the establishment beyond capacity. The owner and funeral director, Albert Ulmer, returned home from honeymooning in Hawaii to find his exam room crowded with the victim's bludgeoned remains. IDing them wasn't easy because of the extent of the wounds and the body's decay. According to Grunder, most of the corpses were too far gone for anyone to determine whether they had been raped or not. On top of that, 
Because many of the deceased were marginalized from society, neither friends nor loved ones were lining up to find or identify them. There were no missing person posters or public searches to link to. As the murder count climbed, reaching 10, investigators found key pieces of evidence near some of the bodies, bank records and receipts from a market showing the name and signature of 37-year-old Juan V. Corona. Yuba City Police Officer Jesse Escovido, one of the only available agents who spoke Spanish, accompanied detectives to the suspect's home. When they arrived, Corona and his wife seemed very nervous, Escovido told the local paper. The pair shooed their daughters to their respective bedrooms before Escovido read the man his rights and arrested him. Handcuffed in the back of the police car, Corona asked Escovido for advice. Get yourself an attorney, the officer suggested. Two more bodies were discovered before that day's end. Within a week, investigators exhumed the remains of a total of 25 men. Then the search was called off, not because they thought they had found all of the victims, but because the orchards would need increasingly more water soon, which would make finding remains extremely difficult. Officers also believed they had enough for a conviction. All but one of the victims had been slashed in the head with a machete or smaller knife. Many had upper body stab wounds. One had been shot. All of the men had either worked as a contractor for Corona or been seen with him, and all of the bodies were positioned as Kenneth's was. One arm raised up, the shirt they were wearing pulled up over their head. When detectives searched Corona's truck and home, they found numerous items that seemed connected to the crimes, including a meat cleaver, a machete with an 18-inch blade, a wooden club, a post hole digger, which is used to dig narrow holes to install posts such as for fences, and a ledger containing a list of 34 transient workers. Several of the victims' names appeared on that list. Ranch hands were not surprised by Corona's arrest. Earlier in his life, he spent several months in a state hospital after intense hallucinations and delusions led to a diagnosis of schizophrenia. And while most people with schizophrenia aren't violent, Corona had a reputation for just that. Known for angry, violent outbursts, plenty of people feared him. An issue of Life magazine from June 1971 included a full-page black-and-white shadowy photo of Feather River, framed by a mess of tangled brush. The headline read, Grizzly Harvest, Mass Murder in Yuba City. The accompanying text said the 25 murders represented the worst mass murder of the 20th century in the United States. A trial began two years later, and it was a bit of a mess. Judge Richard E. Patton said he was truly appalled and almost incredulous at the floundering prosecution who were accused of mishandling evidence. At this point, Patton said, according to court documents, it appears the investigation was inept, the preparation inefficient, and the prosecution inadequate. Even so, enough circumstantial evidence was presented to convict Corona of all 25 counts of murder, for each of which he was given a life sentence. Seven years later, a state appellate court 
overturned his conviction on the grounds that his attorney had made a farce and mockery of the trial, seeming even less competent than the bumbling prosecution. The defense hadn't even called a single witness, so Corona was granted a new trial, at which his defense tried to point the finger at his brother, according to the Washington Post, a man who exhibited maniacal rage from, quote, the frustration of a morbid sexuality. But no physical evidence linked him to the crimes. Corona testified on his own behalf at that second trial, again claiming his innocence and denying any involvement in the killings. More than 200 witnesses were called over a span of seven months. At the end, jurors reached the same verdict, guilty of 25 counts of murder. He would maintain a life sentence charge for each. Many people speculated that at least one other person had to be somehow involved, but no one else was ever charged or convicted. Theories abound about Corona's motivations for the killing spree, which is believed to have lasted six weeks. He had known anger issues targeted at gay men, and gay porn was found near one victim's body. His limited mental health care was insufficient, involving 23 shock treatments after which he was pronounced recovered. That was years before the killings, later coined the Machete Murders. According to news accounts from 2011, Corona told a psychiatrist that he killed the men because he believed they were trespassing winos. One psychiatrist even theorized that his madness increased as spring deepened and ripened fruit at the orchards. After he immigrated in the 1950s, Corona witnessed a deadly flooding along the Yuba River, which traumatized him, adding to his ongoing mental health struggles. His brother, Natividad, wrote about this in a petition for his institutionalization in 1955, stating that, quote, he believed everyone in this area has drowned in the flood. He reads the Bible and writes all the time. Corona never made parole, though he applied eight times, and spent the rest of his days in prison. In 1992, he was transferred to the Sensitive Needs Yard after being diagnosed with dementia. He died in March of 2019 at the age of 85. His victims' names included John J. Haluka, Warren Jerome Kelly, Sigurd Bierman, John Smallwood, Mark Shields, Joe Carivo, Raymond Muchachi, Kenneth Whitaker, Melford Sample, Charles Fleming, Donald Smith, William Kemp, Albert Riley, Paul Buen Allen, William Henry Kemp, Clarence Hawking, Edward Martin Cup, John Henry Jackson, Lloyd Wallace Wenzel, Sam Bondified, and John Matchak. Four of the discovered bodies were never identified. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute.